So, how's everyone doing? Good morning. <laughs> in the world of ministers and pastors, there's a story that goes around, and maybe for some of you in your industry, there's just that one story that kind of goes around, and everyone knows it in that in your particular industry. Well, I guess in my industry, the, the pastor or the minister industry, there's just one story. I'm not sure it's true, but I'm going to tell it to you guys anyway, because it, it goes along with what we're, we're talking about today. And it's, it's about this, this pastor, and he comes into, uh, he, he, he's, gets invited to, to speak at a church, or he's a new, the new pastor of the church, and they invite him to, uh, come and, and speak and be a part of the church. And so he's at the church, and he's, and he does a great job. And after church, uh, there's just one, there's just one older woman, and she says, hey, you got to come over for for dinner at my house on Tuesday night, and he's like, "Oh, that'd be great. I'm gonna, I'll be there." And uh, so he he uh, some of his other buddies find out he's going, or some people at the church find out that he's going to to dinner, and they're like, "Man, I can't believe you're going over to her house. You, she's she's crazy. You you, I, we can't believe you actually committed to going over and eating dinner at her house because all she does around here is complain." She just she complains about everything. She complains about the preaching and the color of the of the walls and the carpet and, and everyone else. She just complains all the time. We can't believe you're going over there. She's like, oh, it'll be all right. I'll be all right. So he heads over there uh, for dinner. Walks in and sure enough, he just starts right. She just starts right off with him. I I just can't believe the church just complain after complain after complain. And then her husband's in the in the dining room or he's he's watching TV or something and he's hanging out and. And she just starts complaining about him. I can't believe him. He's so lazy. He doesn't do anything. If he would go to church, if he would be saved, his life would be totally different. He would just be a different person, just complains and complains about her husband. So she, she finishes complaining about him to the pastor, and she, uh, she walks to the kitchen, gets some stuff ready for, for uh, dinner. And uh, the, the gentleman's like, hey, hey, I've got to tell you something. He's like, what do you, got, what do you have? And he's like, I was baptized years ago. I've just been waiting for her to stop complaining to tell her. And <laughs> he's like, I don't tell her though. He says, I don't tell her. Don't tell her that I told you this. And I don't know if that's a true story, but it goes really well with, with what we're talking about today. We, we just, we don't like being around complainers, do we? Like we just, we try to get as far away as possible. There's, um, there's a picture I want to show you up here. Some of you guys have seen this sign. Have you seen, or maybe some of you have this actual thing at, on your desk at work for some of you guys, right? And, but like, this says a lot about our culture today, I believe, right? We have this culture that we don't want to deal with complainers and, and it kind of, it's true, right? Like we don't like, we don't like being around people that, that complain a lot. And so, so this week we're, we're going to be talking about what it looks like to have a Christ-like attitude, Last week, last week we learned we learned what that God wants us to be selfless. Well, this week we're we're moving on to the next thing that Paul teaches us, and it's something we often hear, and and today it's going to become our theme, and and that theme today is it's it's not about me. It's not about me today. I want you to lock those words in your mind. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me. Lock those words into your into your into in your minds today and actually just probably for the rest of your lives because it's, it's not about me <laughs> you see if we can if i believe if we can lock those words into our minds i believe it'll change how we think how we talk how we view things it'll change everything if we can lock those words into our minds if we really lived it's not about me life 
then there'll be three things I believe in all of us that will be different. And those three things, they come right from, from Jesus' teaching. Everything is, all about, everything is all about being Christ-like, right? And there are three things I believe that he teaches us that Jesus showed us while he was here on earth. To live, it's, it, to live and it's not about me life. So if that's true of me, it means I will do three things. The first thing it's going to mean, and if you're, you're taking notes or you're writing this down, you're going to want to write, write these three things down. Also, if you have your Bibles with you, awesome. Open them up to Philippians. We're going to be going through, through chapter 2. We're going to be following along there with that. So the first thing is, is if, it's, if I'm going to live it, it's not about me life. You need to know, you need to empty, you need to empty myself and serve others. We will empty ourselves and serve others. Philippians 2.5 says this, In your relationships with one another, have the mo- same mindset as Christ Jesus. We must have the attitude of Christ. If you and I are to have the attitude of Christ, we'll also have the actions of Christ. So have the attitude of Christ. And what did Jesus do? He emptied himself. We're going to read about that um, beginning in verse 6. It says this, Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Some of the most powerful words I think you'll read in Scripture. Jesus emptied himself. He gave everything. Jesus wasn't kind of God. He is God. And even though he is God, he emptied himself and he took on the, the form of a bondservant. Exodus 21, 1-6. Uh, we see what a bondservant is. We're not going to read through that, but I'm going to tell you what it is. But if you're referencing and you like taking notes, there it is. Exodus two, um, yeah, 21, 10-6. But a bondservant was somebody who was so overwhelmed with debt, so under-resourced that they, they just couldn't exist with, with culture. They just couldn't be around. It meant that they, were, they weren't able to have food. They weren't able to put clothes on their back. Uh, they couldn't take care of their own family. They probably really didn't have a place to live, and if they did, that place where they live wasn't going to last long because they couldn't afford to live there. They were probably going to lose it. And what they would do is, is they would go to somebody who was very wealthy, had a lot of money. They would go to them and say, hey, would, would you pay off my debt? And, and, and if you would just wipe out my debt, I'll, I'll be your bond servant. And that meant for the next six years, their debt was gone. They were free. They, they were essentially a slave to the person, but they weren't a slave. But they were essentially, it was kind of that. But the bond servant, in turn, had a place to live, food to eat, clothes. They, uh, it was really cool. Their families could move in with them and their families would be taken care of. Um, and they were, they were, they were, their life was set. They were taken care of. And then after six years, if they were a faithful bondservant, they were given enough money to go out and start, start a brand new life. And they, and they could just live life on their own and take care of themselves. But if they didn't want to go, they could do one thing. They, the the bondservant would have to go to their, their master and they say, hey, can I stay? Can I stay and live with you? And if that wealthy person agreed, they would do this. They, they would have to go down to the city gates and they had to repeat these words. And, and I don't want you to miss these words because they're very important today. Don't miss them. They would have to, the bondservant would have to, have to stand there and say, I love my master. I love my master 
I want to be with him forever. And if he did that, they would pierce his ear kind of as a, a sign, a symbol, uh, a kind of like a, a, a way of belonging to someone. And they would go would live with their master and being taken care of essentially for the rest of their life. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus became a bondservant to you and me. He became our bondservant. He, be, he, he came out of love, and because he loves me, and he loves you, and he loves us so much, he gave up his life on the cross for us so that we might be servants, so that we might be free, so that we might be taken care of. He emptied himself for us. You and I need to empty ourselves and do that too. You see, that's the very idea of what God wants us to, for, for me and you to do. He wants us to be a servant. You need to be serving your friends. We need to be serving our families. We need to be serving our co-workers. We need to be serving our neighbors. Whoever is in your world, you just need to serve them. You need to have the attitude of, it's not about me. We need to be serving the church. Everybody here who's a Christian... You have a spiritual gift that God has given you and he wants you to use it to serve in the church. And I sure hope you are. You know, I love going to the Christ and Youth Conference every year with, with our high school students. And every year for the past, it's been like five or six years, but the kids come back and they have these kingdom worker cards. And you may have heard about them, but these kingdom worker cards are so incredible and they challenge the kids to, to do things probably you and I would be a little skeptical about or a little stand, standoffish about. But they challenge our students in ways that are unbelievable. And this year our kids just came back on fire, ready to serve. I mean, and you're going to start to hear some of them. One of them was one of our students has to like get involved with missions and, and send a, our missionary a care package every single month. One of our students has to go out into their city and, and clean up and make it more beautiful. One of our servants has to serve their youth minister. It was a, <laughs> I was, it was, it was a nice, it was a nice card, but they have to, <laughs> that, they have to send me and Lindsay out once a month for a date night and, and child care. And I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> Some of our students, they have to serve their families. One of our students has to make dinner once a month and plan it and sit down with their family and eat the meal. And, and man, it's just so cool to see God working in our students, saying, you know what? God, I'm here. I'm ready. Use me. What do you want me to do? Our high school students doing that. Jesus emptied himself, and we need to empty ourselves. Matthew 16, 24 says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We have to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. And when we do that, we're going to live a selfless life where we care about others. We see this in Jesus in a very clear way when he washed the apostles' feet. When the, when the apostles got together for, for their supper, they didn't, it was the last supper, they didn't know it was the last supper then. They started arguing about who was greatest. And Jesus, uh, because he took on the, the form of a bondservant, actually did something in that moment. He laid aside his cloak. He got a basin of, of water and a towel so he could wash feet. That was the lowest slave's job. And just like today, washing feet is not a fun job. 
If you came into church today and I'm like, hey, you're washing everyone's feet in here, you'd be like, are you serious? Wow, I'm blessed. You, you wouldn't do that. But in that moment, Jesus washed the apostles' feet. John 13, 12 through 17 says, when he, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, now that I your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor his messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The blessing only comes in the doing. We don't serve to get blessed, but you can't serve and not get blessed, right? Our lives are better when we empty ourselves and serve and, 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 and we see ourselves that way because the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of all. We have to have this attitude. Jesus did. He became a servant. Jesus humbled himself so much is to not only become a bondservant, he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. Uh, the vicious death he died, the torturous end he came to, and, and, and he looks at me and he looks at you and he asks us to take up our own cross. I hope you know how much he loves you. I, I hope you know how much he cares for you. And God was so pleased with Jesus being a bondservant and so pleased with him for going to the cross. Philippians 2.9, it says this, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody someday will confess but if you confess by choice, by free will, out of, out of love, he'll bring you into a relationship where he will be your father. He will become your master. He becomes your bondservant where he loves you and takes care of you. This only happens, though, when we start understanding the joy of emptying ourselves and serving. If I'm going to live, uh, it's not about me life. The second thing you need to do is we need to work out our salvation. We have, to, we have to work out our salvation. Philippians 2, chapter 12, uh, no, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 12 through 13 says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to, in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Work out your salvation. Our salvation is a gift from God. We do not earn it. We do not gain it. It's by good works. We do not marry it, right? Ephesians 2, 8-10 through 10 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's hand, handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You are, not saved. you are not saved by works. You are saved for works. And we do those because we love, we love the Lord. 
And we do, this, we do that because we love God. We do that because of what He's done for us on the cross. We also do them because He's prepared them in advance for us to do. Because it's the greatest life you'll ever live when you serve. That's where the blessing comes from, when you serve. When I'm being the person God created me to be, I've noticed that I'm, doing, I'm fulfilling everything that He wants me to be. He has called me to do. The blessings just rain down in my life. I've noticed that over and over. This week, just for instance, uh, no surprise, my van breaks down in, in Madison in the middle of the rain. Some friends from church said, hey, we'll help you fix it. Go out. It's kind of dark at night, and they help us fix it. And we get back, and dinner, we come back, and dinner is prepared. And I'm like, we should be preparing you dinner. You just fixed my van, and I should be making you dinner. But they made us dinner. And it was just it, it's the small things. The blessings rained down. I remember after Joshua was born, night after night, a family came by. Hey, we made dinner for you. It's just the little things that you see the blessings in. And when you're, when you're fulfilling God's purpose in your life, you start to see those blessings happen. Faith always gives birth to works. James 2, 18-20 says this, but someone will say, you... You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Faith without works is, is useless. The gift of salvation is a lot like your body. And where am I going with this? The body you have right now is a gift from God, right? Right? Nobody here earned their body, right? You didn't earn it. Not like you earned your paycheck. You, earned your, you didn't earn your body. No one here picked out that body for you. God gave it to you, right? But He gave you a body with an amazing potential, God-given potential. When you work out or exercise, what happens? You get a stronger body, right? A body with more vitality and more energy. Your body can do things you can't even imagine. When you work out, your body likes it, right? You sleep better. Everything is, is better when you work out, right? The same is true with your salvation. If you work out your salvation, you'll actually find, find your salvation creating in you more vitality, more energy for the kingdom, and more excitement and more joy. As you exercise and work out your salvation, everything in it becomes better. And when this happens, you start to experience, uh, we read about it in 1 Corinthians 2, 9-10, through 10, it says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human has, has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. There are so many people not experiencing, not experiencing life like this, like they should, like, because they're, 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 not, they're just not experiencing it. And by the way, when you experience life this way, it's, I got to tell you, it's not an easy life. It's not easy. There are going to be tough times. But it's a life of standing in awe of God. And, and I can't even describe to you how great life is when you are working in his, uh, when he, within His will and you're doing what He wants. And let's get really honest. There are, there are Christians, some possibly sitting in this room here today, who are sitting out there wondering... Is this all life has to offer for me? And today God is saying, work out 
your salvation. When you work out your salvation, you'll be blessed because of it. Paul says this, this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says that, not just work out your salvation, work it out with fear and trembling. There's a very unhealthy view of Christianity out there that says, one, if we don't have works, then, uh, then we're not, there's no salvation. I don't believe that's accurate. That's not accurate. We do. And number two, that we're not supposed to fear God. In a healthy relationship with God, you should know God's, God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy. But you should also know His justice and His discipline. And we should have a fear and trembling of God. Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You and I will never know true knowledge if we don't have fear for the Lord. Paul says this, talking, in the, talking to the New Testament Christians in Romans, he says this, Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Without a fear of God, you're not relating to him in a healthy way. You, you, you won't get the idea why we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You won't understand it. I've got to tell you, I have struggles in my life, but I, I, I don't think this is one of them for me. I, I, I understand that healthy fear of God. I understand what that's like. And I think a big reason for that is because of my dad. My dad, he, he was, he's a great dad. My dad was loving. He was kind. He was fun. My dad was fair. And he knew how to discipline Good fathers know how to do that. I love spending time with my dad. But there were times I didn't want to be around him because I knew I messed up. I had been caught doing something or exposed for it. Sometimes I got spanked bad by the wooden spoon. <laughs> I was never abused though. And in those moments, I never doubted once that my dad loved me. I never doubted he wanted me to be a part of the family ever. A loving father disciplines. It's tough for some of you teenagers to hear that. Hebrews chapter 12 even says, if God is not disciplining you, you're not his child. You matter to God and he has pleasure in you working with you as you work out your salvation. He brings you and me to places we can never imagine. And the third thing, the third aspect of a Christ-like life, and one that I, I, I agree is not easy. It's so difficult for so many of us. Don't complain or argue. That's a tough one. Don't complain or argue. Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing. The Scriptures don't say, do some things without complaining and arguing. Some, and some, like some translations even has, um, has complaining as grumbling. It says, but do everything without complaining or arguing. Some people can't even open their Facebook page without complaining or picking a fight with someone's point of view that they don't agree with. God can give us victory, 
But there are so many people that have a struggle with this, right? It's a part of our culture. And most of the time, we're, we're so caught up deep into it, we don't even realize we're doing it. Philippians uh, 2, 14-18, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a crooked and deprived generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast in the day of Christ, that I do not run or labor for nothing. Paul says, no matter how much I've poured into you, no matter how much I've taught you, if you turn to complaining and arguing, it's all useless. All that teaching, all that prayer, all that discipling, it's all useless if you complain or argue. It has no value. Paul says, I don't want this to happen though. I want you to stand out. I want you to be different like the shining stars in our universe. Look what he says in verse 17 and 18. But even, if, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you, with all of you, so that you too be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, do all things without complaining or arguing. And by the way, I think I might be killed for this, but I'm not going to complain. I'm going to rejoice. He says it's a, it's, a, it's a very real possibility. I'm probably going to be tortured. I'm probably going to die. But I'm going to rejoice. Paul shows us that when there's a horrible moment of adversity in our lives, he chooses to rejoice. I hope that you would choose to rejoice too. Don't think for a moment that the people he's writing to don't have adversity. Don't think that for a moment. They do. But he's saying, don't complain about that adversity. God does not like grumbling and complaining. How do I know? Numbers 11, uh, chapter, number, chap, Numbers chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then the fire in the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. God does not like grumbling or complaining. That pessimistic, negative attitude is not what God wants. Marcus Buckingham says this. He says, The opposite of a leader is not a, is not a follower. The opposite of a leader is a pessimist. Paul also says he doesn't want us to argue. It's not that we can't discuss things and have a dialogue about them, but it's the idea that I'm, 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 I'm having a conversation with you and my only purpose in conversation is to tear you down and make sure there's uncertainty in your life about it. It's the opposite of love. You and I aren't supposed to be tearing into people. We aren't supposed to dispute every little thing and every little issue that comes up. God says, don't be that kind of person. Pick your battles. I have to admit, the past few months have been tough for Christians as we look to our government and the Supreme Court. But I've also seen some of the worst in Christians come out from some of those decisions as well. And it breaks my heart. The way we have, we have torn down homosexuals and those that support the decision to legalize homosexual marriage. We often forget that the same God that loves you and sees past my faults and your faults loves everyone. Paul shows us in 1 Corinthians that God was angry over sexual normality happening in Corinth. He was angry at their idolatry and he was angry over their grumbling. 
Knowing that, he says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, And do not grumble as some of them did, and were killed by the, destro- by the destroying angel. Those things happening, these things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Paul says, I don't want you to be a grumbler or a complainer like they were. We need to learn a lesson from Numbers chapter 11. Have you ever been on a long trip with someone who complains? It's miserable. I can't get there fast enough. Stop complaining. (laughs) No matter the situation, God's word says, do everything without grumbling or complaining. Grumbling and complaining reveal your heart. You might say, you don't know what my heart says wrong. I think I do. The Bible tells us. He says, he says the Bible tells us two ways that we can see inside someone's heart. First way, first one, Jesus says, where your treasure is, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. The second one is by the words that come out of, out of our mouths. Everyone speaks from the heart. Matthew 12, 34 through 36. 34 through 37 says, You brood of vipers, how can, you, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings, brings evil things out of the evil stored in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account of the day of judgment for, for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Be a person of praise. If you have an enemy, you pray for them. Maybe you're going through a tough time right now. The Bible says consider it pure joy and praise God for it. The best way to defend against grumbling or complaining, I believe, is to memorize Scripture so that, so that you would fill your heart with His Word. And that you would pour out positive words and His Word to other people. Be those kind of people. We find contentment when we say, it's not about me. And when we don't grumble or complain. In his book, The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis brings out this truth in a very powerful way. In the last chapter of the book, it's called The Last Battle, if you've ever read it. And in the culminating war, the last war, it's called, it's called The Battle Between Good and Evil. And in the book, there's a group of dwarves, and nobody really likes the dwarves because they're always complaining. And they're grumbling. No one wants to be around them. As the battle begins, they, they need them for the battle, though. They need these dwarves. Nobody wants them around, though. So, but we still need them. We've got to fight this war. As the story goes on, evil begins to win and everyone's captured. And when they're captured, they're, they're tied up, they're bound together, and they're thrown into this barn where this huge dragon-like creature is going to kill them in a very painful way. Lucy is caught in, and she's, she's caught and thrown in. Prince Tarion is caught and thrown in. Peter is thrown in, and the dwarves are captured as well. The dwarves are all tied together, and as soon as they are thrown in, uh, the head dwarf says, don't look, don't look. So they all shut their eyes before the dragon pounces, and they're all like this. Don't look, don't look. And in that moment, as the dragon's about to pounce and about to kill them, the rapture happens. They're all in heaven, and Lucy's cheering, and Prince Tarion is cheering, and Peter's excited. 
It's a wonderful moment. And they look over and they see all the dwarves and they're still huddled up together. They're, they're free now. They're not tied and bound together because they're in heaven. They're free. And they're still with their eyes closed. And they're still huddled up. And they're believing at any moment the dragon is going to still pounce. And, they try to, and the rest of them try to convince them, hey, you're in heaven now. You can look. You're in heaven. They don't believe it. You're just trying to trick us, they tell them. Then Aslan comes as Jesus. Lucy says, can you help them? Aslan says this. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, no, I can't help them. Because they're in prison. In their own mind, they'll never be let out. They've locked themselves away. And so C.S. Lewis has this group of, of dwarves sitting in the midst of heaven with the love of God, and they'll never know it for all eternity because they're negative. You and I don't want to be that way. Life is going to hit you at times. There's going to be pains and wounds. We've got to trust in God. We've got to hang on to Him. We need to be a bond slave to Christ. We need to say, I love my master. And this morning, if you've never had that opportunity to say that you love your master, as we, as we prepare to sing our song of invitation, you'll have that opportunity to come forward and say, I love my master, I love God, I love Jesus. You'll have that opportunity. If, if you want to give your life to Christ and say for the first time in public, I love my master. And if you do that, you'll come forward and we're, we'd love to baptize you in a new life of, with Christ. Or maybe for you this morning, it's just been a, a tough week. I heard a lot of stories this week. It was a tough week for a lot of you. And if that's you, our elders are here. We'd love to pray with you. Or maybe for you, you you've been coming to Huntsville Christian Church for a while. Uh, you, lo- you like what we're doing. Um, we're not scaring you off with our sermons, but you, you, <laughs> you want to be a part of a church that reaches out to our community and loves Jesus. We don't always do it perfect, but we, we do seek after him. If that's you, as we sing our song of invitation, I want to encourage you to come forward. Would you please stand with us and sing? I always ask permission before I can close out with this from my, from my boss. Now it's time to go. And as you go, remember, it's not about me. We must always have this attitude. Do everything without complaining or arguing. If you find yourself complaining, I want to encourage you to do this. Stop and say five positive things. I don't know. You get stop complaining. We have to. It's not. We need to be like Christ. People would be rather be people would rather be around someone who has a positive attitude than a negative one. If you find yourself ready to to post a complaint on Facebook, run, throw your computer out the window, do whatever you need to do. It's not worth it. It's not Christ-like. Before I close, if you're here, um, if you were here last week, we all said uh, Philippians 1.21 together, and it's right up here. I'd like for us to do that again. And I'll remind you, Philippians 1.21 says, together, um, for, for, to me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So let's, let's say that together before we close out. For, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Remember that. Have a great week.